Let's try that again. Good morning, and welcome to this morning's service. If you would, uh, you got a bulletin, a uh, couple of announcements. Uh, the uh, next week, there is going to be a, a baptism preparation class uh, at uh, 9.30. Uh, those that are being baptized can uh, go through that. And then uh, on uh, March 22nd, uh, the beginning study of Jonah with the ladies. Um, and then, of course, today is uh, Italian lunch day. So please uh, stay on after the service and enjoy an Italian lunch. You would uh, follow along in God's Word in John 12, uh, verse 23 to 26. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. God, add a blessing to the reading of his word. Incidentally, uh, there is a box as you go up to the auditorium to the right that has some coats and some very interesting uh, cups uh, probably left behind by some of the Awana attendees uh, or even Sunday school or church uh, attendees. So please take a look at it and see if you can claim something. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank you for this beautiful day that you've made. We thank you for it. We thank you for those that are here and just uh, pray a special blessing as they hear the word that uh, you've uh, given uh, our pastor to uh, give us. And Father, we, we think of those that could not be here, that... Uh, either sick or traveling, um, and those that are observing uh, on the live stream. Father, we thank you for them. We pray that you bless them and watch over them. And again, we thank you for the blessings of this hour. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. Would you stand with us? For songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious song Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mountain Fixed upon it Mount of thy redeeming Hither by thy help I'm come, 
Now my sin is dead and gone, and I sing hallelujah.
things are still to come. Oh, I believe if I'm not dead, you're not done. Greater things are still to come. Oh, I believe this is my testimony from death to life. This grace rewrote my story. I'll testify by Jesus Christ the righteous. I'm justified. This is my testimony. This is my testimony. This is my testimony. From death to life. This grace rewrote my story. I'll testify by Jesus Christ the righteous. I'm justified. This is my testimony. This is my testimony. the more 
Good morning. Good morning. Uh, children, you guys can go to Children's Church. Uh, remember that, are we all going to Explorers? We're all going to Explorers. You guys like surprises? I like surprises. That's where we're all going today. So everybody, even you guys that go to Adventurers, go on to Explorers today. We're going to combine those classes. All right. Welcome. Remind, remember that uh, we do have a large lunch. By the looks of it, there's more carbs in there than I've seen in a long time because it's an Italian-themed lunch. So you're going to want to stay for that. Um, if you forgot to bring something, don't worry about it. There's plenty. Um, and so you want to stay for that. Um, I would like to mention that we are having a baptism class during the Sunday school hour uh, next week. But uh, if you can't make that, that's okay. We can... Uh, we can arrange another time, especially adults. Uh, you know, that class is going to be geared towards probably uh, junior high age and down, uh, and you're welcome to attend it. That's not a, a hard line. Um, but if you'd like to be baptized and you haven't done that since you trusted in Jesus Christ and you'd like to follow uh, Him in obedience and live your life following Him, then that is what we'd, we'd like to provide that opportunity. So you can call the office or you can call me directly. Um, that's what I have my cell phone on the business card for. We will. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Bill's going to fill in for this Sunday school class, for the adult Sunday school class here next week. Um, so, yes, there will be Sunday school. I just will not be teaching here. We will meet in my office, I think. Unless we have two or three more people, then we won't fit because I have too much stuff in there. Uh, those of you who have had a membership meeting in there know that sometimes we, you know, not quite, uh, I haven't, you know, Jacob hasn't had to sit on my lap yet, but it's getting kind of close, you know. It's a little tight in there with six or seven people. Uh, Jacob's not here in the moment. He's getting a drink. Oh, there he is. There he is. Oh, man. Yeah. 
Uh, so it's a little tight in my office sometimes. Anyway, go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. That's where we're going to be today. And this is, this is probably one of the more, most familiar passages uh, to many of you in 1 Thessalonians uh, because it gets read at virtually every, every funeral service, um, appropriately so, by people that understand it in every single imaginable way, different way possible, <laughs> um, but they all read it. Uh, at, at every funeral, um, and so you're going you're gonna to be familiar with those things, and we're going to take our time and understand what we're being taught here uh, in, that, in those verses, because un- unlike my, my youngest son has a really high opinion of my reading of Scripture. Um, he does. He, I'm, I take this as a compliment, but virtually every Sunday he tells me, Dad, you could just read the verses as if my reading of the verses would just convey all and, and, and applicable exposition and meaning for those verses. So I just take that as a compliment from him. I'm sure he's not in a hurry to get the lunch or anything like that. It's all spiritual. Yeah, appropriate laughter there. Chuckle, chuckle. Yeah. Uh, but here we are, right? So we've been talking about um, essentially God's will for our lives. That's important, right? God's will for our lives, Paul says, is sanctification, uh, holiness, being set apart. That's what God's will for our lives is. That's the category that we have been in the past few weeks. The first category was, right, um, the sanctity of marriage, right, among the brethren, that we, we should have, uh, hold marriage in honor, and that we should not fornicate, but we should all figure out how to get ourselves a wife, guys. We talked about that a little more at the men's breakfast. We had a, yesterday we had, a, on, I think it was like a quarter of a millennium versus of worth of marriage experience there. Uh, and we had an expert panel to instruct our young men as to what they should be looking for according to the Bible. And that worked out really well. But well, that's what we talked about, and we wanted to talk about that. You're supposed to not, not engage in extramarital sexual activity. You're supposed to each be able to find a wife, young men. That's how that's supposed to be. Then the second was that we were supposed to behave properly towards outsiders. And we clarified as we were going through that, that that does not mean that we displace our love for the local church and the body and the brethren love that we're supposed to have among each other and redirect it outside. Because that's the death knell for a local church. It is also the subject of multiple books that will disagree with me and they are wrong. They are not right. If you hand me one of those books, I will smile and close my office door and put it in the trash. Because I've done it many times over. The local church's perspective must be that we're to behave properly towards outsiders. But part of that is the love of the brethren. We're actually supposed to be uh, loving each other as the priority, sacrificing for each other. And that's what Thessalonians were commended for doing. In order to behave properly towards those who are outside, we are to endeavor to live a quiet, peaceful life. We're supposed to mind our own business, and we're supposed to work hard. We're not supposed to go to the unbeliever, whether that is a government entity or some other charity or whatever, with our handout and say, Jesus loves you and he gives me all that I need with our handout. We're supposed to work with our hands so that we have something to share, right? That's another scripture with those in need. That's how we're supposed to behave properly towards outsiders. It's not reprioritizing 
the love that God has designed us to express towards each other in the local church than to the, those outside. But there are specific instructions that we have in order to behave properly towards them. Now, some people think that Paul changes topics here, that he shifts gears, and I don't think that's what's happening. I think we're still talking about God's will for our lives, which is, what's the thousand-dollar Christianese word, folks? I just said it. Sanctification, right? Holiness, being set apart for a process, right, or a service area. We're still talking about that. That's God's will for our lives. He wants you to be sanctified. So he gave us those instructions. Set yourselves apart in marriage. Set yourselves apart in love for the brethren. Set yourselves apart that you would behave properly towards outsiders. But he shifts topics within that category from behavior to thoughts, emotions, the things going on in your mind. And he is addressing that as part of what God's will for our lives is in sanctification. So it's not behaviors that we shouldn't engage in, but it is emotional and mental exercises that we should not engage in. And that's another category, right? So he says in verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are sleeping or who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So Paul says, we don't want you to be ignorant, All right? We don't want you to be uninformed. We, we need, you need to have this information because this information, this specific information creates boundaries for you, for your grief. He not say you're not supposed to grieve, but these are the boundaries. And that's what makes it a sanctification discussion. You're to be set apart from the grief that is common. You're to be set apart from that. You're supposed to have boundaries set by this information from grieving like the rest of everybody who doesn't have the same hope that you have. Now, I will say, there was a time where my primary ministry was um, essentially doing funerals for hire for a long time. Uh, felt like a lot longer than it was, but at the time I thought, am I ever going to do anything but preach funerals? It was a unique opportunity that not everybody gets, and, but it gave me a lot of opportunity to observe the nature of people's hope and the nature of people's grief in different circumstances. See, I could, I, I could preach the funeral of a believer whose family was all unbelievers. And I could tell them, good news. I know that you miss your loved one, but your loved one is with Jesus, and here's how you can be with Jesus when you stop breathing also. But if they hadn't done that, by the time the funeral service came along, they grieved because they had no hope, and it was profoundly different. Now, unfortunately, some believers still grieve the way unbelievers do, because they have not trained their thought processes and their emotions to respond properly in light of the hope that they have. And I was able to see that also. Paul says that the hope that we have in Jesus Christ prevents us from going off this reservation into the land of hopelessness when it comes to our grief. 
It's a sanctification discussion. Paul's desire is that they would be sanctified from hopeless grief. And that requires specific information. These are relatively new believers. They were impressive, right? We've talked about that, that they had achieved a high level of what we would call pattern integrity, right? They were, they were exceptional. They were to be mimicked. They were to be copied. They were, people were to follow their pattern. Paul may have expected, right, and, and, and had taught them when he was there that they would not experience that sometime in their lifetime that they would be with Jesus, that they would be what we would call translated rather than resurrected. Paul seems to still have that expectation. And that's a, that's a tremendous thing to have communicated to them in the relatively short time that he was with them. They had a sure and certain hope of being with Jesus. They weren't worried about that, but people did start dying. Uh, people, the, the time had now extended to the point where people had stopped physically living that had been a member of their local church and who had this hope in Jesus Christ. Even with the, the amount of pattern integrity that they had, even with this awesome amount of information and incredibly rapid maturity that they, they possessed, but they began to wonder... They hadn't fully synthesized what it would require for those to, who passed away physically to participate in what Scripture calls the blessed hope. Now, if I were to tell you, you know, there's this thing that make, is supposed to make you super happy. It's supposed to make you super blessed. That should be an encouragement to you, right? And if I were to tell you, you were supposed to experience it, but then you realized you weren't going to or you were considering the possibility that this thing that Scripture calls the blessed hope of being with Jesus always and forever in His presence, and there was a chance now that you might miss it, what would happen? Grief. And people who loved you would grieve for you. But that's not what we're supposed to grieve about. Paul told us that all right. Already. Verse 14 starts this way in most of your translations, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Some people will say you can even go so far as to say since we believe, but I think that's a little too far. It's a first class condition, which means that Paul is saying, I think that all of us are on the same page. I expect a positive answer, but he's not demanding that everybody just step in line and toe the line. He's saying, but I expect that, that my audience is going to agree with this that we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Do you believe that? Good. That's a good starting point for our discussion today. If we believe that, that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him, that's Jesus, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. There's a natural corollary to this. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we believe all of the promises related to that, which is that we will be with him. God will ensure that. That will take place. It's a natural extension of that information. God's purpose is that all who are in Jesus, who have fallen asleep, that was a way of describing someone who physically died, All those who have fallen asleep will be with him. 
just like those who haven't, because that's what he promised. Now, you ought to understand the, the word, in, this is a privilege that is given to the church, and we've defined church, I think, as, as clearly as possible and as simply as possible, I think memorably, but I'm going to ask you to remember it again, I'm going to just restate it. The church is those who are believers in Jesus Christ, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's who the church is. People in other dispensations who are believers in Jesus Christ who are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, not the church. People who believed in God's promise of the Messiah in the Old Testament, not the church, because they're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There will come another time, in my understanding of Scripture, in which God is working in those who are still believers in Jesus Christ, but who are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit during the tribulation. They also are not the church. This is a unique position, and we're going to talk some more about how unique it is. Paul is saying this, you guys are all the church, and all of you have this promise, and all of you will be with Jesus in the same way. No one's going to miss out. It's in verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Paul is telling them here in this very first phrase, we, receive, we, we say this to you by the word of the Lord. He's saying that Jesus told me this. In other words, you're not supposed to go and look for this down in writing somewhere else, specifically these exact words. Paul said, this is a word that I received from Christ himself, and he had ample opportunity to do that. This is the truth. And he says, those who are alive when Jesus comes for his church will not precede those who have fallen asleep those who are in the grave. Those who died as believers in Jesus Christ, specifically. Jesus will come in the air. These heavens with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. And I forgot my trumpet, or I'd blow a shofar for you. It's one of the weird things I do, but I forgot it. With a trumpet. Now, there have been naughty people in the world, particularly at very fundamentalist Christian colleges that have tried to fake the rapture on their roommates in the dormitory, but I don't think you can fake the shout of an archangel. Several, I'm not kidding. Several names you would know have been very nearly or actually expelled from very private conservative Christian colleges because they tried to fake the rapture. Bunch of sinners. <laughs> Don't do it. Because it causes grief, right? That's the whole point of this passage. We're expecting to go up in the air and meet with Jesus and be with him always from that point forward. We shouldn't be doing that to each other. There's all, I'm a practical joker. I wouldn't do that to you. Every single person in Christ, every single life, every member of the church 
who was a believer in Jesus and dwelt by the Holy Spirit will be with him in that moment. They will arise first. Now think about that. That may not have been that many people when Paul wrote those words. I mean, relatively speaking to the population of the earth. But think about that now. Think about it now. How many millions, is it millions? Could, could I even go more than millions, maybe billions of people? In my lifetime, I have run across uh, usually older cemeteries that have no room in them. They're going to have a, no more problems with their business model after this, I think, right? A lot of empty tombs, empty graves. It's weird, isn't it? Like the last time I had to call 911, they put me on hold. Can you imagine calling the cemetery and say, we got no room? That's how common death is, right? That's, how, that's why it inspires grief, because we, we are exposed to it and we grieve over it. This is going to be a joyous thing. When my dad passed away and went to be with Jesus and we buried his, his shell, his tent, you know, we tried hard to make sure that in the future that they would be, my parents would be buried next to each other. It's, it's hard to do sometimes. And my mom is very pragmatic about it. She actually says, well, it doesn't matter anyway. We're all going to be with Jesus. Oh, she's stalwart. So, well, I think it does matter a little bit, Mom. I think it does. And I may just be gushy and soft and squishy because y'all know that's how I am. All about the pretty and all about the feelings. Joyce, you know it's true. Don't lie to me now. I'm all about those feelings. But think about that, you know. Uh, you spent most of your life together. I have spent half of my life with my wife Priscilla as husband and wife. And marriage changes in the eternal state. But wouldn't it be nice as you're ascending to be with Christ always? to recognize the person next to you as the one to whom, with whom you lived most of your life. I think so. And I don't think I'm just being sentimental and squishy, guys. You can accuse me of it, but y'all have been wrong before. I think it's important. I think that's a consideration. It's not something that everybody gets to account for. But we won't go first. The ones who are absent from the body are present with the Lord. They will go first. The ones who are in Christ, who died, who are asleep in him, is the way Paul describes it. That's pretty accurate, I think. Then we who are alive, like that, Paul considered, at least, that it might be in his generation. I don't know many Christians who actually consider this event imminent today. I know many of Bible church people that affirm the doctrine of the imminency of the pre-tribulational rapture. But that's different, isn't it? Than walking out these doors and saying, I hope it's today. I pray it's today. That's different. And I hope that I fall into the latter rather than the former. But I do hope it's today.
I was telling a friend of mine when I was at the conference I went to in Houston a week or so ago, and, and we were talking about what we hoped we were doing when the rapture happened. I said, I hope I'm preaching this passage because that would be crazy appropriate, wouldn't it? It would be like the, the mother of all applications, right? The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive will be with him, right? Right at that moment, that would be like ideal, but I'm not sure I'm going to get it. I'd have to preach this thing a lot, which we should be doing more than just reading it at a bunch of funerals. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord from that moment forward. We will be caught up. That word is important. Uh, there are people, y'all know there are fools in the world, right? That's not news to you. Y'all laughing, but I'm serious. Y'all know that there are some fools in the world. Some of those fools that are in the world will tell you that the rapture is not in Scripture. That's a foolish thing to say. The person needs to study a little bit about translations, a little bit about languages a little bit about systematic theology. They just need to study a little more. The word rapture is actually a Latin root word that translated the word harpazo, which is to be snatched up. Raptured. Be with Jesus. So please don't buy the cheap chicken bologna that we manufactured the rapture in Scripture. We, we are susceptible to prejudices in the Bible, but people who teach that there is no rapture in the Bible also have an axe to grind theologically. And, and we'll talk about that here in a minute, but the axe to grind is that they believe that at least for one generation of the church, that you've got to validate your faith by suffering through the tribulation. Well, what about me? Why don't I have to validate my faith that way? Why do those poor people have to go through God's hellacious wrath poured out on the earth such that Jesus himself said that if the Lord himself had not cut the day short, no life would be left on the earth? How'd they get that short straw? I mean, seriously, does God love all his children or does he just hate most like those? <laughs> I think the Scripture teaches God loves all of His children. The time of Jacob's trouble we call the time of Jacob's trouble because it's about the time when Jacob has trouble, not the church. It's Israel. And it's definitely in the Bible. And that onus is not placed on some generation of the church just because they got a short straw. Let's pull that one first slide up, Tammy. Would you mind doing that for me? We, we probably ought to, because we're dispensationalists, and dispensationalists and most people's definition are people that have charts. So my friend Paul Miles says, nobody else bothers with charts, but we chart their positions. So there. This is what we teach here at El Paso Bible Church, pre-tribulational rapture. So here we are. I'm going to fall off these steps. I don't have a pointer yet. 
I got this point of the one Jesus gave me. The cross, the church, the rapture, the snatching up of the church, followed by the tribulation. Now, that may be a little tight. We may have some years intervening between the rapture and the tribulation, but roughly. Second coming, when we come back with Jesus, we go with Jesus, we come back with Jesus in the millennium. Last judgment, eternity. But we're not there yet. Y'all, if y'all want a revelation, y'all missed out on Sunday school already, so we'll, we'll do it again sometime. But this is another topic. This isn't, but this is what we're talking about. We are here, in, oh, I can't even reach it. I got long arms. We're between the cross and the rapture. And as I said, let's have it today. Maranatha, right? Let's do it today. Because the world is a train wreck, right? Every generation of the church has said, can it get any worse? And then we proved it to them. Don't say that. It's a challenge. All right. So let's do the next one. Because I, don't, I want to compare it. So y'all, y'all have this in your mind. I didn't give you a handout. And I'm not burning it into your brain. Okay. So just keep the order in mind. This is called the mid-tribulation view. Also sometimes called the pre-wrath view. Um, I understand the entire tribulation to be what Scripture refers to as the wrath of God. And Paul has already discussed that. He said that Jesus is the one who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. That, we talked about that at the time. We said that can't be hell because wrath is not an eternal character trait. It is an expression of God's righteousness and justice in the presence of wickedness, which has a time frame, right? Right? Wickedness isn't going to be forever. Amen? Praise Jesus. We get to be glorified, freed from the very presence of sin. They see it this way. Uh, that here we are, and somewhere in the midst, they vary on the timing, certain events. Most of the time, uh, the abomination of desolation during the tribulation, say that then that's before the wrath, the full wrath of God is poured out, and then we're raptured. Um, Paul doesn't say that we were delivered from most of the wrath of God that is to come. Is that okay? Is that simple, simple enough? So I don't think this applies. Okay, so Tammy, can we get the third one? Uh, post-tribulation, uh, are the people count? I'm not playing nice this morning. They have an axe to grind. They're the ones that believe that you, there'll be some generation of the church that is forced to endure this tribulation in order to be saved. They'll even say that. The one who endures to the end shall be saved and they apply it to this. Uh, this is where the church goes through all of it. The weird thing about this is that they play fancy with the numbers. Fancy is a nice word. They play funny numbers. Uh, this is like the federal government printing money here at this point. Because they don't, the tribulation is how many years? Do you all remember? Seven years. How much is half the tribulation? How many days is that? Come on, you bunch of dispensationalists, 1,260 days, something like that, right? The Bible tells us all of the numbers, and they go, yeah, those don't matter. Those don't matter at all. Like, it's broken down into days, people, 24-hour periods. And they say the church age is just the tribulation. It's not seven years. It's 2,000 years plus counting. I don't buy that. That's cheap chicken baloney. And there's lots of books that are made out of cheap chicken baloney. Okay. So y'all understand, we're not teaching this one. We don't teach the mid-trib or pre-wrath, pre-tribulational, because we believe that when Paul says that he delivers us from the wrath to come, 
It is a particular event, the time of Jacob's trouble, seven years, the great tribulation, and we're delivered from all of it. And it's not because we're scared. We get this all the time. You guys are just pansies. You don't want to go through the wrath of God poured out on the earth. Are you dumb as a box of rocks? I'm not scared of it, but I'm sure thankful that Jesus says we deliver from the wrath that is to come because it's enough to kill everybody if God didn't cut it short. I think I have a right to be a little nervous about that. I'm not scared of things, guys. Not easily. But I think if you don't take that blessing seriously, you're off your rocker. Or a few fries short of a Happy Meal, we used to say. A couple screws loose. Need I go on? I've got all sorts of euphemisms for being dumb as a box of rocks. All right. Pre-tribulation, rapture. Only one that says that we are actually delivered from the wrath that is to come, like Paul promised us in 1 Thessalonians 1. Wrath is something on this earth, and it's not eternal. Wrath is not a character trait of God, and this is important. It is not one of his perfections, and this is where some of the middle-aged theologians went nutty. God's perfections are many. His character is many. But wrath is simply a demonstration of one, of his, one or two or three, maybe, of his character traits in the presence of wickedness. And so it's, it's not eternal conscious torment. It's not hell. It's something in, temporal, in the temporal world is brought to this earth. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is also important with these three views. Which one of these can I comfort you with? I can comfort you with that one. When Paul said, we're going to deliver us from the wrath that is to come, he meant it. Praise Jesus. The other views are meant to scare you, cause you apprehension, give you a heart attack. If I read Revelation chapter 4, about 22, 15, that could give you a heart attack if you don't know who Jesus is. Comfort. Do not be hopelessly grieved when a believer dies because we will see them again in the air. We will all always be with the Lord. Now, they weren't worried, ultimately, they were not talking about the eternal state. They were looking for a particular benefit that they had been promised, and they thought that their loved ones who had suffered with them, believed with them, been discipled with them, and been taught these same truths that were going to miss out on a particular opportunity. That's what they thought. They weren't worried that somehow those people were going to go to hell because they didn't get, involved, didn't get to go up in the rapture, but there was a particular benefit to that. Why does it matter? Why is it significant? to the church that the rapture is the next eschatological event that we're to expect. We're to live that way. It could happen at any moment. Nothing left. All of us who are, in, who are believers in Jesus, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, can look forward to that. 
Well, they understood it as a promise to them. Is it important that Jesus keeps all his promises? It is to me. Because I need Jesus to be better than I am. To have hope in him. I'm pretty good. But I had to grow into that. I failed on a lot of my promises. Jesus has failed in none of his. And he doesn't even need you to keep breathing to keep his promises to you. Did you miss that? It's important that we remember that Christ keeps all of his promises and the fact that we happen to stop breathing doesn't keep him from doing that. It might stop anyone else, right? It's not going to stop him. And people will tell you, they will tell you that the doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture doesn't really matter. It's not that important and you can't prove it anyway. It's not that significant. I'm trying not to be angry. It matters a lot. And y'all understand, you know, I might be warm and fuzzy and squishy when I need to be. But it matters a lot in our life. And I don't care that it's fashionable to be squishy on that. It is fashionable. Oh, we should just throw this all away. A denomination that I used to be licensed by just chunked premillennialism, which is part of this a few years ago. Oh, that's a non-essential doctrine. Premillennialism is broader than just the pre-tribulational rapture. It's huge. But that led, they allowed all sorts of different perspectives on the rapture, and it led to them chunking premillennialism. Huge. I've told you how dumb it is. There are people that live on this earth, two large groups of people. Some of them are the post-tribulationists that believe we're in the, the, the wrath of God right now in the church age. And another huge group in the church is what's called an amillennialist. Now, you know what an amillennialist means? means they believe that we're in the kingdom right now. So imagine how dumb you have to be to have the majority of the church represented by those two groups. We believe that the wrath of God is being poured out on the earth right now on his own kingdom. <laughs> and other people are looking at it saying, this is, this is Christ ruling with an iron fist from the throne of David from Jerusalem. And over here, this mass massive group of people thinks that God's wrath is being poured out on the earth. The only thing I can say about that is you guys are both extremely wrong. It's wholly other. It's just totally different. It's foolish to say that this doesn't matter. Because it's important that we understand the uniqueness of the church in his plan. I think I can demonstrate this. What was promised, those of you who have been in Sunday school will know this, uh, and by the way, y'all are missing out on really rip-roaring series in numbers right now, but you missed this already out of Exodus and a couple other places, but you'll know, what was Israel promised for obedience? What was Israel promised for obedience? Abundance? Protection? Lots of wine, lots of grain, security in their land. 
from generation to generation to generation for those who love him. Israel was promised abundance and peace and blessing for obedience. What were you promised for obedience? What was the church promised for obedience? Anyone want to step out there? I won't squash you if you're wrong. I'll tell you you're wrong, but I won't squash you. What was the church promised for obedience? Suffering, pain, and death. Worthily. That's what the church was promised. Jesus said that. They will hate you for my name's sake. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. I want my peace and abundance and blessing. That comes in the kingdom. But we're the church fulfilling a unique plan and purpose in God's structure, plan for the ages right now. And obedience brings suffering in this world. We're not Israel. And because we have that unique place in God's plan, we have also been promised a unique privilege. Because our obedience brings suffering, we get to see something that no other dispensational group gets to see. Old Testament saints, as far as I can tell, get resurrected here. I actually get to point to this one. I can reach. And I'm not falling off the steps. Where are we at that point? We're with Jesus. Where is Jesus? Jesus is in heaven. We have a Jesus eye view of the events of the culmination and consummation of God's plan on the earth for Israel. We get to see why it is that our obedience resulted in suffering. Why we were hated for the name of Christ in this world. From the events of Revelation 4 to through 21, a little bit into 22, right? Of being with God, with Christ to witness this particular progress in his plan as God is working out his final plan in the nation of Israel and seeing why it is that our obedience brought hatred and suffering from the world. We get to see things that saints from other dispensations do not get to see. We get to see prophecy fulfilled without having to participate in it. Just ask a bunch of the Old Testament prophets whether they would trade you for that opportunity. We get to see this part without having to participate in it. You can ask Jeremiah, right, down in the pit. He would love to have been able to witness that without having to participate in it, I think. It's a privilege. And it does. It offers comfort and encouragement. Comfort and encouragement. It's a tremendous gift and a privilege to us, and we ought not rob each other of it by entertaining the cheap chicken baloney that says that it's imaginary. But we also ought to comfort each other with the truth that the next time we see those who have died in Christ, we will always be with Jesus. Always. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these promises. We thank you that you have equipped us as the church to uniquely serve in this part of your plan and your purpose. And we thank you for the unique privilege that it will be to be with your son always from that point forward, to be able to see these events unfold and to have that special position for that time. Father, we, we, we long for it even today. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us as we dismiss with a song? sons and daughters wash of blood our God will finish what he started this is my testimony from death to life Testimony. This is my testimony. This is my testimony. From death to life, His grace rewrote my story. I'll testify by Jesus Christ the righteous. I'm justified. This is my testimony. This is my testimony. I'm going to have to make this just what I do. Yeah, y'all can clap. I know you're not clapping for me.